Hello and welcome to episode 38 of the Creative Forces podcast. Uh, it's Guy here as always and yeah, thank you for being patient. It's been a, almost six months since the last episode but I've had a pretty good reason. Uh, Emmeline, my daughter, is now nearly five months old or four and a half months She's doing all right. She had chicken pox after about when she was four weeks old, which was a bit of a shock uh, for her especially. But um, we're doing all right now after a bit of a rocky start. And uh, yeah, she is amazing. Uh, and things are settling down just about enough at the moment where I feel able to be able to do uh, a few more episodes of Creative Forces, which I hope you will enjoy. Uh, I'm going to release... This is the first of three episodes that are coming out between now and Christmas 2019. Uh, this is the first one, Joanne Harris, who I'll tell you about in a minute. Really excited to have spoken to her. It was a great chat, and I think you'll have, you'll th- I think you'll really enjoy it. After that, uh, ne- in a fortnight's time, it'll be Andrew McMillan, uh, son of Ian, of course, who's been on the podcast, the poet. Andrew McMillan, his dad, Ian, also a poet. Andrew was great. I spoke to him uh, in Manchester, at Manchester Writing School, where he's a lecturer. Uh, really interesting, his story. Um, and then the third one which is exciting, which is actually going to be recorded live in front of a studio audience. I'm speaking to Oliver Jones, who's the founder of the Deer Shed Festival, also of the podcast Social Club, which is where the uh, recording will take place in front of that audience in Thirsk in Yorkshire. Tickets are available at podcastsocialclub.com if you hear this in time. But if you if you hear this on the day that this is released, then you will. If, it, if you don't, uh, if you hear it later, then you, you'll you'll have missed it by miles. But don't worry about it. Podcastsocialclub.com. Uh, it will be published soon. If you can make it, it'd be great to see you. Come and have a chat with me afterwards if you want to. I'd love to speak to you uh, if you've got any thoughts or any questions about the uh, the podcast. So three episodes between now and Christmas. This is the first one. Uh, and it's Joanne Harris uh, is the interviewee in this episode. Now, you probably recognise her name. She's the author of more than a dozen novels. Uh, the most successful, most famous, of course, is Chocolat, which was made into an Oscar-nominated film starring Juliette Binoche and Johnny Depp, made in 2000, uh, and really, as you'll hear in the interview, really changed uh, Joanne's life pretty much overnight uh, when that came out. She was born in Barnsley. She started writing at an early age and worked as a teacher for over a decade, she also had a brief stint as an accountant, which we'll hear about. And that was before the success of her third novel, Chocolat. And that allowed her to become a full-time writer, which she's been ever since. And her books are now published in over 50 countries. They've won a number of British and international awards, all bestsellers since that publication as well. In this interview, uh, which we did at her home in Yorkshire, uh, you can hear why Joanne never thought she could earn a living as an author until Chocolat's success, why that brief stint as an accountant was, in her words, like being in a Terry Gilliam film, and how she and her bandmates, uh, she's a bass player, have managed to stay together for more than three decades. I should say that the day that we recorded, it was absolutely chucking it down uh, in Yorkshire. It was dark. We we met at about I met her about eleven in the morning, but it it was dark. It was cold. It was rainy, and that's what we started talking about uh, when we sat down for this interview. Oh, I get SAD. I just I just go to sleep for three months. Really, so I take during... all sorts of supplements, and I've got lights and and things that do help me kind of actually get out of bed, but um, I'm. It is a slow period for me. Right. So is that you say SAD? Is that sort of self-diagnosed? Do you mean, or have you been to see someone about that? Or it's not something that you can really do much about that I'm not already doing. Right. 
You know, it's it's not it's not something. Uh, otherwise, you know, I could always go to Hawaii for three months, I guess. <laughs> but that's pretty much it. So, what is it then about the weather? Is it the rain? Is it the dark? The... It's both. It's mostly an absence of light. Yeah. I find that I'm very light sensitive anyway. Right. And um, yeah, a lot of my major functions just shut down when it's it's dark and it's like this. And so, do you does your writing really slow down then over the winter? It stops. Right. Pretty much. It it. it it mostly stops. I mean, I can kind of artificially produce some kind of reaction with, with lights, but they're not very pleasant to use. They're not like sunlight. Mm. You have to put them on the desk and they have to be right in your face and they give me migraines and, and I'm not terribly fond of them. They, they kind of wake me up, but there's a price. So do you basically just work in a shorter window then during the winter or do you just, as you said, you just not work at all? Really? Daylight hours. Yeah. Um, and there are not very many of them. At the moment there is... There is pretty much no daylight that I count as daylight today. Yeah. It's, no, it's going to be a bust today. I'm not going to do any writing today. Right. I, I can tell. And I've, I've also got to the point where I no longer worry about this because I know what happens. Yeah. You know, there'll be days when it's sunny. Yeah. And during that time, I'll come awake for a little bit. You know, like the squirrels in the garden. And yeah. I'll dig around and I might find something. And then I'll, I'll go back to sleep again until it happens again. And so you don't fight it, basically, now. Did you used to fight it in the past? You I used, used to, think, to worry. Yeah. I don't anymore. Um, I know that, you know, there is a cycle. And it's probably part of the process because, you know, it seems to have worked up till now. Yeah, yeah. And so do you, in the summer then, when it's much longer, do you work, all, you don't work all the daylight hours, presumably in the summer? Well, it depends what I'm doing. Um, it depends what else I'm supposed to be doing. But I, I usually work much longer hours and yeah. I'll wake up much earlier yeah. and I will be more productive generally. Now, we're in your study now, as I think you called it the study, but we, there's some amazing objects in here, including, did you see, this is a book press. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a book press. Um, I went out to buy a proper grown-up desk and I came back with this. It's a, it's a 17th century book press and it's a giant chunk of wood yeah. and, and machinery. I, I really like it. I just really like it. This, this room here was, was kind of bare when we moved in and I said I want to make it a library and so I had all these bookshelves and things put in yeah. and, and Kevin, my husband, said, well, it's your responsibility. You end up dealing with it any way you like, <laughs> which is why it's such a mess and why it's full of books and, and, and also lots of other things which have kind of found their way in here because they don't have a place elsewhere. Yeah. There are some, I mean, there's some, I can see a lot of books, obviously, but there's also huge, this painting. What's this, this painting is interesting. The, the painting, actually, I, I've only just got this. I got it through the post. Right. Um, it's, it's by an artist who did it as basically fan art. It's, it's Runemark's fan art of a very superior kind. It's, right. uh, it's a portrait of my, uh, my version of hell from Runemark's. Mm. And um, the lady who did it, who is called Rissel Mercato, um, showed me a a, a, a a reproduction of it some time ago and, and then said, would you like it? So I said, would I ever? And and so she sent it over very kindly. Mm. So I'm now trying to find a place to put it because it's it's very unusual and very striking. Yeah. And I'd like to be able to display it. And so, There is no wall space here. It's all books. Yeah, it is all books. I mean, it's an amazing room. And you say you used to, you actually used to work in here. I you used, used to, to do work writing here. In here. I've actually got a shed now in the garden. I've had it for about six years. Right. And my, my husband built it 
because I was always getting disturbed by the neighbours and my parents who live in the village right. and the postman and the cat and, and him also because family tends to just walk in on you when you're working somewhere close by. Whereas the shed, it's down a muddy path and, and it's it's a bit more investment of time. And so yeah. generally people don't disturb me there. And so I, I've moved there and the shed is is the, the overspill to this place. Um, there are fewer distractions and that's, that's normally where I work when I'm at home. Yeah, and lots of natural light, I'm assuming, in the, the shed. The light is beautiful. Beautiful. This is this is one of the reasons my husband built it the way yeah. he did. It's got big windows at the front, and so I get as much light as I can. And because it's at the top of the hill, I get it even in winter, so yeah. I can make the most of the light. And that was one of the the reasons that uh, that that I've moved there, really. Yeah. And so we're you know we're in Yorkshire now, and you've lived here a long time, haven't you? You you grew up. Yeah, Not I was, far from here. I was right? born in Barnsley, 12 yeah. miles away, and I've, I've always lived in Yorkshire apart from being at university. Um, I've basically moved 12 miles from the place I was born, <laughs> which means that I'm basically a class traitor to the people of Barnsley. <laughs> if I'd moved to London or LA or something like that, it would have been fine. But yeah. there is a definite coldness from Barnsley at the moment. And, and <laughs> this makes me sad, but it's also quite normal. Yeah. Has there ever been a temptation to move to New York or LA or Oh no. Like that? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I'm very happy here. Um I like Yorkshire. I like the people. I yeah. like the countryside. I like not having to live in a city. Hmm. I'm quite happy to go and visit cities, but I wouldn't want to live in one. Why is that? There's too much going on. Um there is too little woodland and countryside. Mm. There are too many people. There are not enough green spaces. There's too much pollution. I like it here. Yeah. And it means that, of course, I can kind of pick and choose the things that I want to do. If, yeah. if if my publishers want me to do something important in London, I can get there in two and a half hours. Um, if it's something very dull that I don't want to do, I can say I'd love to do it, but I live in the north, you know. Yeah. And Londoners <laughs> go, oh, yes, of course, we understand. Because they imagine that it's basically all corrugated shacks yeah. and ferrets up your trousers <laughs> yeah i get that sometimes it's a, it's quite a good sort of get out of jail free card isn't it you it's don't you don't good. have to travel to i'm London, very lucky i get say. the best of both worlds i i get to to have a house of decent size and a great big garden and lots of peace and quiet yeah and i also get to well do all the things that that any author has to do yeah. in terms of touring and signing and and yeah. events and you've just been on a tour recently, haven't you? How's... I haven't come off the tour. Um, <laughs> I, I've, I've been basically on tour since April. Right. I've been coming back home from time to time, I, but I've, I've not had a week, a proper unbroken week at home since April, since the book came out, which, which is par for the course if it's a bigger book. Hmm. But I'm glad it doesn't happen all the time because I would never get time to write anything. No. Do you enjoy being on tour, though? I enjoy it to a point. I do find it quite tiring, hmm. but I think it's important. Um... You know, I don't have to go on tour. I don't get paid for going on tour. It's not part of my contract. But I do think that it's it's beneficial to an author to to see readers and to talk to them mm. and to get feedback from them. And it's also unfair to readers and to booksellers and to the people who have brought your book out not to go out and, yeah. and tour because people would like to talk to you and, and hear what you've got to say. And, yeah. and it basically, it's showing willing and showing gratitude for the people who have put your book on the shelves. Yeah. And the people who buy it, I guess. Well, is there's that too. They, they, they nice are also part of the equation. They're the ones that keep <laughs> it on the shelves too. Yeah. Is it nice? You know, is it a, a nice experience meeting those people? It is. It's very nice. It's... Um, 
It's always a bit puzzling to me why people like my books or whether they're going to like my books is always a question before the book comes out. I, I genuinely don't know. I don't no. know if I've got it right, if, if people are going to understand what I wanted them to understand from it. And so it's very good, actually, to get proper, honest feedback from readers because mm. critics are fine, but they all have their own agenda. Yeah. And they have a slightly different approach to readers. So readers are more important to a certain extent. And are they pretty brutal with their feedback or are they, do they sugarcoat it a bit when they're talking to you directly? Well, do you know, nobody has ever said anything brutal to me directly. <laughs> I don't think people do. No. If people don't like a book, they just don't say anything. No, that's true. This is certainly true in person. On social media, sometimes people will say they don't like something, but mm. it's, it's not terribly often with me. I mean, from time to time, I will get an indignant reaction from somebody. Um, and sometimes it's because they would have liked the story to go a different way. Hmm. Or sometimes it's because they've taken a story incredibly personally in a way that really only they could have taken it. And and that's peculiar, but it's not something that I can do anything about. Hmm. Um, and so I just generally ignore those people <laughs> because um, I don't have much to say to what, what they think I was writing about. Hmm. But most people overwhelmingly are just incredibly nice and kind and they just want to share what they thought and and so it's really nice to hear i read your book and it reminded me of this or it made me feel that yeah that must be nice when it you know obviously as you mentioned some people take it very personally or it makes a real connection with them that must be is that a gratifying thing when it's so when people connect with it very personally yes it is it it's, it's very touching and and rather humbling actually that that these connections can be made but it's what we all want as writers. It's it's what we hope for to make this this kind of human connection. And when it happens, it always surprises me a bit. And particularly when it happens across cultures and in other countries and other languages, because you never know how it's going to be received elsewhere, whether it's going to translate, whether people will get it, whether there's something universal there mm. that they can hang on to, or whether it's just not going to be understood by that culture. So growing up in Barnsley then, was it always writing that was your ambition or were there other things going on when you were younger that, or were there other paths you could have taken? Well, I did. I, I became a teacher. My parents were teachers. My grandfather yeah. was a teacher. I don't think anybody ever questioned the idea that I would be a teacher. And as for ambitions, I don't think I'm an ambitious person. I've never really been ambitious. I liked to write. I liked to tell stories, but... Mm. In those days in Barnsley, there were no readers' groups. There was nobody to encourage. Um, I remember once telling uh, the, the careers advisor at school that I wanted to write, and I just got <laughs> puzzled silence. Because people from Barnsley didn't do that in those days. Right. It wasn't something that anybody understood or would have encouraged. And so I just did it for myself on my own. And I kind of found a path into it sort of accidentally without really expecting mm. much to happen. But I was a teacher for, for 15 years before anything yep. anything happened to make me think that perhaps I would be able to give up my day job and, and write full time. Most, most authors don't write full time. No. Most authors keep the day job forever. Mm. And did you, when you were younger, was it, how early on was it that you realised that you were enjoying writing for, you know, that it gave you pleasure to write stories? Oh, I think I wanted to tell stories as soon as I understood what stories were. Mm. Even before I learnt to read, I was already imagining stories. I think it came naturally to me in the way that, that sometimes it does with children. And, and the idea of pretending 
and telling stories were very much linked in my mm. mind. And so, yeah, I've, I've always done that. And were your parents encouraging then? And Because they were teachers, as you mentioned. Were they encouraging of that? or No, 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 they, they, they didn't really care. Um, it was it was something that I did. They didn't care about it any more than they would have done if they'd seen me playing with my dolls or right. or my my toy cars or, or anything like that. It was a thing that 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 I did as a child, and I I didn't expect them to take any notice of it because they both expected me to be a teacher, and they right. were right. Um, and they wouldn't have considered either of them writing to be a proper job if they still don't consider it to be a proper <laughs> job. <laughs> so it was always like. The expectation was you would get a proper job and be Absolutely. a teacher or something similar. Well, what alternative did I have? It's <laughs> not like I had massive inherited wealth or anything. Of course no. I had to get a proper job. Everybody did. Um, and, yeah, I mean, that there was a general understanding that there was no money in writing books. Hmm. And so I was brought up with that idea. I mean, honestly... Um, my parents were both language teachers and the house was absolutely full of books by dead 19th century French novelists who had all died penniless yeah. in the gutter of syphilis. <laughs> and, and, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't what you'd call um, a really encouraging role model for me. Yeah. Not very I'd never aspirational. Met an author. Um, I didn't really think of authors as being living people with lives who, who actually wrote for a living. Most of the authors I read were either dead or not very well. <laughs> and, and you know, you didn't... There was no culture of the book festival right. or the author visit. That came later. And so, is it right that your mum was French, is French, your dad's English? Yes, that's right. And... So what is it right that you was, you spoke French at home or you, it was your first language Yes, it was my first language. I didn't I didn't speak English until I went to school. My mother couldn't speak English when she came to England right. and so we just spoke French at home all the time. Um, my father was a very good linguist. I think he rather welcomed the opportunity to practice his French. Yeah. He certainly never spoke English at home um, and he still doesn't. Right. And so what brought your mum over to England in the first place? Him. Right. <laughs> Where did they meet? Uh, they were they they were both teachers or trainee teachers. Yeah. And and they met at some sort of dance. I think my my dad was on some kind of uh, educational exchange. Right. He, so he and was they, in and France. They met there. Yes. Yeah. That's right. And and I think you know there was there was a bit of a question about whether he would go to live in France, but given that France had military service yeah. and the Algerian <laughs> war was on, yeah, they decided it would be better if they came to live in England instead, and so. Hence that this was my my first language. And, and I, I picked up English pretty fast, as kids always do. Yeah. I still kind of sometimes default to French if I'm really tired. <laughs> um, yeah, sometimes I'll speak French accidentally to the postman, um, which he thinks is very funny. But no, normally, normally I think I get on reasonably well. And so was that it wasn't a difficult thing then when you started school and being or was it a difficult thing? At I don't any stage? remember it being a difficult thing. My grandparents spoke English to me, so I must have known some English mm. because my grandparents lived with us when I was born and then they lived in the house down the road and so they tended to cover for childcare. Mm. And so I must have had some exposure to English. I don't remember there being a language problem. I remember there being a cultural gap. People in those days, I think, didn't see as many foreigners, considered us to be very foreign, mm. And therefore a bit suspicious. And so some people were welcoming and some people really weren't. 
Um, my mother remembers walking me to, to nursery school and the queue of other mothers waiting to let their children into the school just moved about three feet when they heard us speaking a foreign language. Really? Because it, it wasn't normal. No. I suspect there weren't many French people in Barnsley at the time. I don't think there were any foreigners at all. No. There might have been some Polish people. Um, I think I remember there might have been some, but it, it has never been a particularly um, cosmopolitan place. Mm. And so I think in those days we were a bit of a curiosity and, and people would, would stare. And did you feel a bit like that at school at first then? Well, Do you remember? Or? Well, I, I don't remember being bullied or anything. I remember no. there being a lot of curiosity. Right. I remember people wanted me to speak French to them. <laughs> say something in French, they would say. And so I would say all sorts of things that they wouldn't be able to understand. What would you say? Uh, some of them quite rude. Um, <laughs> why do you keep asking me to speak in French, you stupid person? Um, this, well, you know, people, but people were curious. And did some, you tell them that's what it meant? Or did no. You tell <laughs> Sometimes they were, they, were, they, were, they were unpleasant, but most of them weren't. Most of it was just curiosity. Children are a bit like that. Mm. But then you... you uh, Went to Cambridge after finishing school, didn't you? How was how was that experience coming from, you know, Barnsley to Cambridge? The reason I ask is that some uh, people, some people I've spoken to uh, in the past who come from you know northern backgrounds, it can be a, a bit of a big culture shock going somewhere like Cambridge. It was an odd thing. I don't think anybody at at my sixth form college expected me to get into Cambridge. I never got coached. I just took the exam without even knowing the sort of things that would be on it. Mm. Um, I think they must have seen something in that exam that they liked. I just basically talked a lot about literature. I was good at literature. I'd read some. Um, I got in to study languages, mm. but I really wanted to study literature. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, I was fortunate in that I was in a small college which which had quite a sort of diverse population. It wasn't like Maudlin or Trinity, which would have had a lot of public school people and which I would have found very uncomfortable. I did meet a lot of sort of... They were all called Rupert. <laughs> there were a lot of, lot of young men called Rupert in those days and, and young women called Emma. Yeah. Um, but I didn't have much to do with them and they had their own kind of circles and they went to their own kind of parties and they went boating and this kind of thing. Um, as it happened, I was learning to play the bass guitar and I, I got myself a bass teacher in, in Cambridge right. because I had, at Sixth Form College, fallen in love with a drummer. And being a <laughs> classically trained flautist realised that I wouldn't have much of a place in his band unless I learnt to play something else. And so I was teaching myself the bass guitar. And, and via my, my teacher, who was a guy called Ron Argiru, who wonderful guy, who had been in, in loads of bands in the 50s and 60s, had been in the John mm. Barry Seven and things like this. And, and, and he introduced me to a lot of town people, mm. and mostly musicians and artists and people like that. So I, I actually had a social life which was quite separate from the university in a lot of ways. Right. Right. So you were involved in a different sort of sort scene. Sort of. Almost. Yes, it wasn't a decision exactly. I did have friends in the in the college, but yeah. I also had quite a lot of friends who had nothing to do with the college and yeah. and Ron used to debt me out sometimes if he had a gig in London and he didn't want to do it. Right. He would let me do it instead and and so it meant that I I didn't have that college experience that some people had which is a bit like being in a slow, snow globe <laughs> where where you never leave yeah i was constantly leaving <laughs> i was either going to hull to see my boyfriend because that's where he was yeah or i was i was sort of hanging around with with ron and and his mates who were all basically 
old guys yeah. in their 60s. They were old <laughs> jazz musos. And, and it, it, made for a, it made for quite a different social life, shall we say. And a much better one, too, from my point of view. Yeah. Because honestly, I, I wasn't really the sort of person who wanted to party with Rupert's. <laughs> As a fellow bassist, though, um, <laughs> I am intrigued about your choice of the bass. So why did you choose the bass guitar over... Because obviously, you, you, you like the drummer... But it was the... Why the bass rather than anything else? Well, basically, the, the band didn't have a bass player. Right. <laughs> Simple. We, 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 played, we played one gig at sixth form. And um, at that time, I did play flute and I also sang. And both were quite disastrous because, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't very good at singing and I was terribly shy. And the bass player was actually the classics teacher. Right. Which, um, which shows you how hip we were um, at the time. <laughs> And and I thought, well, you know, I, I could I could do that. It doesn't look hard. No, <laughs> that's what I constantly get. It was get. a bit harder than I thought, but yeah. uh, I really enjoyed it and I liked it. And I, I I thought, well, yeah, I could do that. I could make that fit. Yeah. And do you still play the bass now? I do, but I don't play in the band as much as I did because we've got another bass player right. now. We've got um, now we do this this show, this show called Story Time. Uh, yeah. We've brought out two CDs and we've got this kind of live show, which is original music and stories and songs and image projections and it's a kind of it's a kind of jack and ori with drums yeah. really honestly um and i found that i ended up being the front person right i didn't mean to but it sort of happened and i found that i just couldn't do everything i couldn't work the tech and play flute <laughs> and tell stories, and sing, and play bass at the same time. So we got in a bass player who is much better than I am, um, and who is also much easier on the eye. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's freed us up to do things that we wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. And so um, occasionally we'll swap over and he'll do something and, and right. I'll play bass, but not as often as, as, as I used to. What was the sort of music you were playing back in the Cambridge days then? Oh, it was the same kind of music we're playing now. Um, we, we tended to write our own. Hmm. I wrote the, the words. Even then I wrote the lyrics. Yeah. Um, our keyboard player generally wrote the music. Um, when it was written, we would bat it around and put it into some kind of shape and finish it off. Hmm. And it was, it was really, it was, it was sort of progressive influenced, I suppose. I mean, our keyboard player... Is, is very much influenced by Tony Banks of Genesis. Yeah, and, okay. uh, and at the time, he was kind of into Rick Wakeman as well, so there were a lot of, a lot of interminable solos. I think we've cured him of that now. <laughs> and so is the, the, the core of the band the same as it was then? Absolutely. I married the drummer. We've been married for... for <laughs> okay, so that I was the drummer. I can't remember how long now. 30 years or so, I think. Right, um, so, yeah, that's definitely... But yes, we all stayed together and, and when we're still playing. We were playing, in fact, more than we ever did because... That's amazing. You know, when we were in our teens and 20s, we were we were too shy and awkward to play in front of a public. Mm. And, and you know, we didn't even have the, the transport. We didn't have a van or anything. We didn't have any kit. Um, now we have ridiculous amounts of kit far more kit than any amateur <laughs> band deserves to have really but you know it, it's it's nice to be able to do it yeah and it's also nice to be able to do creative things with other people because i think most authors find writing a bit of a solitary thing yeah which is why so many other authors are in bands right you know, scratch an author and you'll find a lead guitarist or something <laughs> I mean, honestly people like val mcdermott and ian rankin and stephen king and kinky friedman and and you know they're all doing it is it quite a lonely life sometimes, professionally, I mean? It can be a bit. I mean, the thing is, it cycles from 
very solitary hmm. to overload. <laughs> yeah, with um, the tools, And there's nothing in the middle. Yeah. I find, I find that I'm... I think I'm naturally a bit introverted in some ways, and I like meeting people, and I like the kind of human stimulus that I get from touring. But I also find it quite stressful. And, and stress doesn't have to be a negative, but I know when I'm on the verge of tipping yeah. and when I actually need to go back somewhere and be on my own for a bit. And, and you have to manage this. Yeah. Because I think a lot of writers are a bit like that. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you can have too much of even good stimulus. And so I have to watch that because otherwise I can, uh, I can tip over and, and, and sort of just not function for a while. Right. And Is I that... do feel a bit like a pinball machine on tilt sometimes. <laughs> what does happen then when you, you know, tip over? What is, what, well, what is I either result? get very tired or I get flu or something. Right. And usually that's the body's way of going, you know what, you need to come home and slow down for yeah, a bit. Yeah. And so then it's a retreat to the house for a few days and yes i just take a lot of supplements and things and 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 party on i've never cancelled anything yet so it's it's uh that's not a problem (laughs) but just think about the band it's amazing that you're playing more now than how how many how often are you playing now then well we practice twice a week yeah we usually practice on fridays and saturdays um in terms of gigging it depends uh we've we we don't do all that many but because story time is a kind of it's a large show for us, at least. Mm. Um, you know, we try to keep it to something that's not going to be exhausting, particularly with me. I mean, this year has been impossible to do much. Mm. We've only done a, a handful this year because I've had too much other stuff to do and yeah. it wouldn't have been sensible. Um, next year, we are expecting to do maybe a dozen. A dozen is nice. It's manageable. Yeah. Anything more than that, it's going to start to be a bit difficult for people. Yeah. So once a month, effectively. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's not generally as regular as no. that. There's usually a cluster yeah. in spring and summer. Right. And that's when the, the music festivals are around. Sure. And we do literary festivals, but we also do music festivals. And I think in some ways, music festivals are a better fit. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it must be fun to still play with the same the same band. It's lots of fun. And it's, it's remarkably rewarding. Yeah. And I know we only do it on a a relatively small scale but it's it's very nice to be able to do that it's amazing that you're still together as well because i was actually speaking to someone last night about uh about bands and i think it's a miracle that any band stays together for longer than like (laughs) three weeks from my experience because there's so many competing things going on so well you know what's what's the secret that's kept it all together well we're friends yeah and we're more or less on the same page. I mean, sometimes there are heated discussions, particularly <laughs> between Kevin on drums and Paul on keyboards, about how things should be. Yeah. But, you know, we know how it works. We've been together for a long time. We kind of, we can predict things that are happening. We, we kind of play organically in some ways. Mm. And Matt on bass, who is a relatively new addition, he knows that, that you know, he's not quite there yet he's he's not going to be able to do that because he doesn't have 30 years of history (laughs) but um no I I think you know the fact that we all care about what we're doing yeah and we all want it to be good yeah means that any kind of artistic disagreements are usually dealt with pretty fast yeah and I'm guessing what must be nice I've had this with a couple of bands is where where you play together for long enough where um, lots of stuff is just unspoken and you almost have a sort of you know, just to look, you can just look over at someone and you know what's going to happen oh, next. absolutely. And that must be nice. To, you must have that. It is. A lot it is. It now. is nice. I think, you know, because this is, this is something that's never going to make money mm. because we're all doing it for love. Hmm. 
you know, I think usually what splits bands up is money. Yeah. And given that there's never going to be any of that, it's not going to be a problem. But, you know, we just want to do it. We just want to, to play and, and audiences seem to like it. And, yeah. and we're constantly experimenting. And, yeah. and to me, it's, it's, it is a logical progression from what I've always done. Hmm. It is just telling stories with a different kind of narrative, hmm. with a musical narrative instead of something just on the page. And, and that's just... It is a nice thing to do. I've been experimenting with different forms of narrative for some time now. Illustrated narratives, musical narratives, um, audio books versus the page, yeah. telling stories as well as reading stories. And everyone has a slightly different identity. Um, and it's why wouldn't you want to go into those areas if yeah. you could? Yeah. One of the things about the bass, by the way, is I'm always intrigued by what bass people have or how many basses people have because my ambition which will i'll never do it i know for sure is to have like a you know a fleet of maybe four or five beautiful basses that i could will just be you know i can pick up one whenever i take takes my fancy but have you always had the same bass over the years or have you got one bass that i've you... got two i've got the one that i got for my 17th birthday which was the one that i got because i i, I wanted to join a band and what was that what... it's it's an aria pro 2 deluxe it's red i'll show you the music room in a minute when okay. we've done and you can have a look Love it's to. a fretless and and i wanted to play a fretless okay why, which was a bold a choice why actually. did you want to do a fretless i interest. thought the sound was nicer yeah i thought it had a warmer more melodic sound um, were there any particular inspirations for that or people that you oh, listen well, I to think, or just... i think i'd listened to some jaco pastorius <laughs> yeah. and imagined that that could possibly be him of course i couldn't and it had absolutely no role in a prog band anyway um <laughs> I've also got a nice uh, a music man bass which is oh. fretted which is uh, which is purple and yep. which I love um and and that's the one I tend to use most That's the workhorse That's that's the one that actually it, it, it's it's less risky Yeah obviously and and it's 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 also got a better fatter sound for what we what yeah. we do honestly yeah. Um Matt has got two very nice basses he's got a fretless as well which sounds gorgeous mm. um and I like it when he uses that um, but he's got a couple of others too, but he doesn't leave them here, so you won't get to see them. Um, but I, I also play a remarkable amount of flute, given right. that I'd, I'd never thought that there would be space for a flautist in a, a, a band like that. I actually play flute on nearly everything. Right. Um, it has become a thing. And that was that was something you learned as a child? Yes, I, I, I learned, I started to learn when I was about seven, I think. Right. It, in those days, you were allowed to have free music lessons at school. Yeah. And and I was one of the people who who wanted them and and initially I wanted to play the saxophone because my grandfather was a saxophonist and um, and it turned out that I was just too small I was just too little to hold a saxophone and so I ended up playing the flute instead. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, it, it's interesting that 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 combination of the flute and the bass. I guess it's the the sort of classical and the the modern. I guess. Well, yes, absolutely. I think so. And because I was always better at playing by ear than I was at reading notes, yeah. um, I actually made the transition in a more organic way than somebody who was classically trained and dependent upon music. I hardly ever get music. Hmm. Paul hardly ever puts anything down on paper. No. Because everything is kind of, everything develops organically. Yeah. And I like that. I mean, it's actually the way I write books too. Right. And And I just like to to play until I find something that works. Right. And I guess, yeah, I know that you have the project where it is, as you say, the Jackanory with drums. So it is combining the music and the writing. Very but much do, so. But do you find 
similarities between making music and and writing in terms oh, of the, the way your brain works around it absolutely i think that you know the creative brain works for pretty much all kinds of creativity and there mm. are people who are into structure and planning mm. and who are therefore more disciplined in their approach and that makes them feel safer and mm. they feel that it's more orderly and then there are people who are happy to just riff and that's that's exactly what I do when I'm writing. It's right. it's to me it's the same process. So you don't plan out your books at all? Not really, no. I mean I, I usually have some idea of where I'm going. Right. I know what key I'm in basically, but that's <laughs> it. The rest is very much improvisation until I find something that works. And then I will work on the same in the same way throughout. And mm. and you know, I find that if if I'm writing something that depends on twists and reversals and surprises then it's actually quite nice for me to be able to surprise myself too, mm. occasionally. Because otherwise, I don't see how I'm going to surprise the reading public. No. And so do you have a, an end, the end in mind when you start a book? Or is it more you start with the germ of an idea and then you kind of, as you say, riff, you riff around it? What? Sometimes I have an end in mind. Yeah. Not always. Sometimes I have a particular scene in mind. It's not necessarily the end scene. Mm. Uh, but I work towards that. And sometimes I have no idea how it's going to end until I get there. Mm. And usually I trust that, you know, basically I feel that I'm kind of building the bridge as I'm crossing it. Right. And I'm hoping that it will kind of end in the right place. <laughs> Most of the time it does. Sometimes it feels risky. Sometimes I kind of just run out of ideas and I have to wait for the next bit to emerge. Mm. But usually I find that if I write it, it comes. Right. What do you, those bits when you say you have to wait for it to emerge, is that, do you mean where you, you kind of take a step back and just think about it or is that actually keep, carry on writing and seeing what happens? Well, sometimes I have to stop and leave something for a while because there is some kind of missing piece that I haven't worked out that I need at that point and I just don't have it. Mm. And so at that point I will work on another project right? Or, or I will go off and do some research or something. But I won't generally just sit there and expect an idea to come because that's not how ideas work with me right usually the more i'm doing the more ideas i get so okay. it's I, I generally feel that if i've reached a block like that it's a sign that i need to leave my desk and do something else and so you have several things on the go often yes hmm. often i have um a rainy day book and a sunny day book so that right. if i'm writing something that's really quite dark and challenging it means that i've got something to jump to Right. If it gets a bit too much, because sometimes it does. Sometimes I just don't want to be in that place for a whole year. Yeah. And and it's quite nice to have something else. And so at the moment I'm I'm writing a, a thriller, one in my, my St. Oswald series, um, which is quite dark. And I'm also writing a Loki book, which like all my Loki and Rune Marks books is is essentially a, a, a comedy. <laughs> Um, a sort of swashbuckling comedy. Mm. Um, and it's quite nice to to change voices like that because they're so different. There is going to be no bleed from one to the other. Mm. That's that's not going to happen. And so it just means that I can... I can give space to a project that needs it mm. for a month or three months or even six months while I'm working on something else and then I can jump back when I'm ready. And is it difficult to switch between the different projects or do you find that quite sort of straightforward to get your head back into that space? It's surprisingly not too hard. Right. 
It generally takes me about three days to get back properly into a headspace of a book that I've left for more than a week or so. Mm. So it's not much. Mostly it's just a question of reading it back, getting the voice back, and the voice is never that hard for me to do anyway, and and just, you know, continuing with it. Mm. Now, you mentioned, just rewinding slightly, you, you did mention that you were a teacher for 15 years, but you did have a short spell, am I right, as an accountant? Oh, yes, that was terrible. So, yeah, I so was how terrible. did that happen? How well, did you end up, is that straight after Cambridge, really? It was straight after university. The thing was, I wanted to do um, a PGC, a teaching qualification, mm. but I also wanted to get a house with Kevin, and the bank wouldn't give me a mortgage unless I was in a full-time employment. Okay. And, and I didn't want to wait another year or another two years. And so I got the first job I could. And, you know, it turns out that accountancy firms will take any graduate, um, even though it was clear that I wasn't cut out for accountancy. I mean, it was, it was honestly like being in a Terry Gilliam movie. Um, and, and I just had the most awful time. So this was as a trainee accountant in Barnsley or...? No, I, I, I was... It was... Um, it was based in Leeds. Right. Um, that was their office. But they sent me on various jobs around Yorkshire. Right. Um, doing a county things. <laughs> um, and going into archives and, and looking for, I don't know, what, what do accountants look for? Fraud, I suppose. Right. Um, it was incredibly dull and incredibly depressing. And what? I just have every admiration for anybody who can bear it because... I was delighted to get the sack uh, when when <laughs> when I failed all my exams, of course, because I was just no good at maths, or and I had to do exams in things like maths and economics and statistics and things, and, and it was just incomprehensible. It was the worst thing. So how long did it last for? A year. Right. Long enough for me to get the mortgage, and then I went off and did so the PGC the and and um, and did the thing. So achieved the objective, though. I did indeed. It was it was entirely. Machiavellian on my part. I had no desire to stay an accountant yeah. for any longer than absolutely necessary. Um, yeah, I, I just, I just wasn't cut out for it at all. <laughs> and you say the Terry Gilliam, like a Terry Gilliam movie. What were, were there any examples of moments where you just were totally bewildered? Well, there is a scene in Brazil <laughs> um, where Jonathan Price is involved in a sort of fight with a kind of flurry of papers that keep coming to him through tubes through yeah. through through these ducts and 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 he keeps he, he can't quite keep up with them and so he keeps <laughs> stuffing them back into the tubes and putting them back in the ducts and they keep coming back <laughs> and eventually the ducts get blocked and and explode and all the paper flies around everywhere and there is Jonathan Price in his little office <laughs> with papers flying around him and that's exactly the scene that I had in mind right that's how it felt. Oh, yes. It just was a bewildering sort of array. It really of... was. And I also didn't, I couldn't find it in me to care about any of it. Right. About whether, you know, a turkey company was, was <laughs> potentially harbouring a fraudster. It really wasn't me. Uh, no. It was It was filled, it just seemed to be filled with people talking about money. Yeah. And squash, playing squash. <laughs> they all played squash and talked about money all the time. Did you ever try your hand at squash? No. <laughs> I could tell that I wasn't cut out for it anymore. That I was cut out for accountancy. No, so, it was it was really not it was not my environment at all and, no. and I think it must have been very obvious to all the other people there. Okay. That <laughs> but, it wasn't my but it environment. But achieved the goal. 
It was, and also, I think, did it was it something that was positive in the sense that I think it's a lot often positive when you find out what you don't want to do as oh, much absolutely. as when you do want to, when you find something you do want to do. Absolutely, I, I also think that all experiences are something to be learned from. Yeah, regardless of how how disastrous or traumatic they might be, <laughs> they're all basically grist to the mill, and um, you know, I. I I, there, there are certain things that I wouldn't have been able to write quite in the way that I wrote them without that experience. Yeah. <laughs> and so then you moved into teaching, basically. Yes, and, I did. And so you were teaching, was it English you were teaching? Or no, literature? I, taught, I taught modern languages. That's all oh, right, okay. I taught French and German. Yeah. Um, and I started off uh, at, at a place in Dewsbury. It was, in fact, the same school that they used in that TV show, Educating Yorkshire. Oh, yeah. Um, and it was it was a comprehensive school, eleven to sixteen, and I mm. stayed there for I think three years. Um, and then I went to a very different school in Leeds, a boys' grammar school, a private school in Leeds, mm. where I stayed for another twelve, thirteen years. It was a very different environment. It hadn't been my intention to teach in a a single sex school or a private school. It just happened that that was that was the thing that that I got. Yeah. Um, and it was, again, there are many things that I wouldn't have been able to write the way I have written them if mm. I hadn't had that experience. Mm. But I liked it. I was good at it. I would have been perfectly okay um, writing in my spare time and and teaching and carrying on with that. Yeah. It was, uh, did, for most of that then, did you see it felt like teaching was your career and that's what you would do till, until retirement? Well, it did seem like that. I mean, you know, it was a proper job. It had a pension. I knew mm. what I was doing. Um yeah, there was no reason to think that that I would leave it. Mm. So you when so but you were writing then, obviously. I was writing. And so I, when I, were you doing that? Was it at the weekends or was it in the evenings? Yeah, or? the weekends usually. Um, with my first three books, I didn't have a fixed publisher. Um, you know, I I was published by three different publishers because my books were so different that that they didn't feel that, you know, they they could publish a second one that was in a different style. Um, so I didn't have any deadlines. There was no financial incentive for me to write fast, so mm. I just I just wrote at the pace that I wanted. Um, <clears throat> and when I had a book, I you know I tried to get it published, and with with shall we say cult success, which meant <laughs> that, that the books were largely was it evil seed. Is that the first the evil one? seed? Yes, it was. It was a vampire novel set in Cambridge. Right. Um, my mother still shudders when I mention it, and <laughs> still refers to it as that terrible book. Well, when I was a child, I wasn't allowed to read horror. Oh right. Or fantasy, or sci-fi. She felt that those things were, yeah, somehow damaging, or toxic, or or not serious, or something. Anyway, she disapproved. And so, so you, I, were, you were directed more to the sort of classics. Yeah, or, or things. French was all right. right. Anything in French was all right. <laughs> but many many English authors were suspect. <laughs> um, so yes, I wasn't allowed to to read horror, and so it was inevitable that as soon as I left home, I was going to read a lot of horror, and then <laughs> then I would write some. Um, and so yes, it eventually got published. That is kind of ironic, isn't it? <laughs> really, that you it's know, inevitable. Yeah, I suppose it is inevitable, isn't it? You you're going to push back against what you're not allowed to do, aren't yes, you? Yes, of course. I was a very quiet rebel as a child, but uh, I, I became more rebellious as I grew older. I'm, I'm getting more rebellious, I think, as I get older. But yeah, I mean, I, I wrote that book and it was fun and I liked doing it mm. and I was happy that it was published, but it, it wasn't really my voice. Right. I, I was good at doing other people's voices. 
Do you know? Do you feel like you were doing someone in particular's voice at that stage? Yeah, I was kind of doing a Victorian pastiche. So there was a bit of Mary Shelley in there, and yeah. there was a bit of you know, there was a bit of Bram Stoker, and there was, yeah. and and it was supposed to be a literary novel with vampires, hmm. which of course doesn't exist. That's not a genre. <laughs> it's, it's, it really isn't. And so when it when it came out, the people who would have liked it didn't read it because it was clearly a genre novel. And the people who read vampire novels didn't like it either because, you know, it was it was far too complicated and and wordy right. and and old fashioned sounding. Um, I did get one fan letter from a, a guy in Pinner, um, which I've still got because it was the first and only fan letter that I was likely to get for years. <laughs> but it was also I mean, I, I was able to move on after that because I'd had yeah. fun doing it, but it wasn't it wasn't what I was going to do forever. But did the fact that you'd got that published that encouraged you then that you that there was something in this and that you could get potentially something you know not that there's something you were doing it to enjoy it anyway yeah but that you could try and get more published after yeah well that. I thought you know if I can do it once maybe I can do it again yeah and so I wrote something else and that too was a kind of Victorian pastiche it was yeah. it was more of a Wilkie Collins pastiche this time and it was in multiple voices I think it had five narrators mm. it was a much better book too it was I was getting better mm. at certain things I mean there were some things that I, I found quite hard at first I wasn't very good at dialogue was one of them I was really really bad at dialogue mm. um Later, I got better at it. And, and just the whole process of writing a book, which is, you know, it's a fair challenge, hmm. writing something. And they were big books, too. They were like 500, 600 pages long. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was an apprenticeship. Was that deliberate, them being very long, or was that no, just it how just, it came it out? No, it's just how it happened. Yeah. I, I've, I've never been... Being concise has never really come naturally to me. Right. It's easier now. It's easier now because I'm on Twitter. Right, yeah. And Twitter has has taught me a great deal about how to construct a concise sentence. And I think yes. it's an extremely useful tool, actually, quite apart from all its other uses. Yeah. But it has properly made me think about sentences and, and the delivery of ideas in few words. And that's that's been very useful. Yeah, you have to seriously sub-edit yourself on Twitter, don't you? You really do. Mm. And and certainly when I was starting off, I was I was super wordy. Mm. You know, if, if I could say things three ways in the same sentence, then that's exactly what I'd do. And if I could use three images instead of one, then that's what I would do. Um, but yeah, it, Sleep Pale Sister was, was was the name of that book. And it was it was okay. It was better than The Evil Seed. It still wasn't quite me, though. I was still right. trying out different voices. And, and the fact that it had five narrators is kind of proof of that. You know, I, was, <laughs> I was basically doing these these voices. And it was something that I think was part of my my process and my apprenticeship. Mm. Some people have an authorial voice early. Mm. I didn't. I, I found mine quite late. Did you Did you feel like you were starting to find it, though, with Chocolat then? When you... Yeah, I think so. I, I'm not quite sure what happened with Chocolat. <laughs> I think what happened partly is that I, I gave up on the idea of pleasing anybody. Right. Because once you've had two books out and they haven't been a big success, then it's very hard to get a third book out. Mm. Um, it certainly was true then. It's <clears> even truer now. <clears throat> And so nothing that I wrote seemed to be appealing to anybody. And my agent was kind of giving up on, on ever selling anything <laughs> by me again to anybody. Um, and he sent, in fact, one of my, my manuscripts out to one of his sub-agents in the States, a guy called Al Zuckerman, who had written a book called How to Write the Blockbuster Novel. Right. Um, and Al Zuckerman sent me back 20 pages telling me how I was doing it all wrong and oh. how... You know, I, I needed to completely rethink my approach and, 
Nobody wanted to hear about stories set in little parochial places <laughs> in Europe. And nobody wanted to read about old people. I had far too many old people in my, my book. And, 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 you know, why do you keep banging on about food? Do you want to write a cookbook? If you want to write a cookbook, just get on with it, but don't put it in fiction. Yeah. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to write a book to piss off Al Zuckerman. <laughs> and I ended up writing Chocolat, yeah. which is set in a tiny village full of old people. Yeah. Loads of food. None of the things that he said were the, the key to a commercial success. And I had such fun writing it. Yeah. I, I just sometimes think that much of my best work has been done to tick off somebody or other. <laughs> and, so um, that was a key motivation, was oh, to yeah, prove I, I, it, almost to prove him wrong, would well, you say? Well, I thought, well, you know what, if... if if he's the kind of guy I'm supposed to please, it's not going to happen. So I might as well just do what the hell I please. And, yeah. and I did. And I did this. I wrote this book without without any great expectation of anything because I thought, you know what, I've been published twice. Hmm. Most people can't say that. Yeah. So I've done that. I've done that thing. Yeah. It's not like I'm going to ever be able to give up this teaching job and write full time. It's not hmm. like I'm, I'm going to go into that world. So why am I even bothering? To please people like this American guy who thinks that I need to, you know, to to set a thriller in New York and write that. So, so I just went and wrote about what I happened to be thinking about at the time, which mm. was the the relationship between fasting and feasting, the dynamics of a small town community, um, the idea of what it was like to be an outsider in a community like that, and mm. I. You know, put some magic in there and splashed some food in there because I actually happened to be interested in the idea of using food in fiction as a metaphor for something else. And yeah. I thought, okay, if people get it, fine. If they don't, you know what, I'm not that fussed. No. And I think in some ways it was it was the the letting go of expectations that that allowed me to do that. And and as it happened, I also found my voice in the process. Yeah. And turns out that what my voice really wanted to say was Sod Al Zuckerman. Yeah. <laughs> and did your agent, when you sent it to him or her, uh, him, is him, isn't it? Yeah, I got a new agent um, oh, after, new after that because, uh, yeah, my, my, my then agent was, was, he was on the verge of sacking me off. So I, I, I did it first and I got somebody else. So did you actually send it to him at all, Chocolat? No, no you, you found a new one and sent it to them. Yeah, I did. I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll start afresh. Right. And did they immediately say this is, you know, did oh, they really did they foresee it. its success? Should I uh, say? I'm not sure if she foresaw its success, but she liked it. Right. Um, she was another solo operator. She wasn't attached to a big agency. She'd never had anything like that before, so she couldn't really quantify. Hmm. Um, so she sent it out to a few publishers. I got a whole raft full of rave rejection letters because <laughs> everybody loved it but nobody seemed to know what to do with it rave rejection yeah, letters absolutely. Not, that's it's a, a thing. great phrase the rave rejection letter it says oh we love your book it's absolutely great uh, but we can't publish it because we don't know what it is and we can't fit it into a category so sorry we'll have to pass and eventually I, I got a publisher who didn't pass and and um, and it took off in a, a very surprising way because it didn't get a lot of publicity no it got mostly word of mouth which is the best kind of publicity but you can't budget for it you, yeah. you can't make it happen it either happens or it doesn't happen and, and how quickly was it between that coming out then and and then the sort of you know talk of or the whiff of hollywood oh being... that oh well um the book was actually optioned long before um before the, the, the book came out was it? it this happens a lot 
And you'll you go to book fairs like Frankfurt and you'll see scouts there optioning unpublished early works right. because they get them cheap. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the longer you wait, if something is a big success, the more you have to pay. And so it's a bit like like buying shares on spec in yeah. unknown companies. I see. And they will buy hundreds at a time. Right. And so I thought, you know what, it's <clears throat> this is not a promise of anything. It's nice. If it happens, it will be nice, but it yeah. probably won't happen because it probably doesn't. Most of the time, you know, maybe one in a hundred options yeah. get taken up. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't like I was, I was prepared to drop everything sure. at that point. It was, um, it, it was something that I would believe when it happened. Yeah. And even when it did happen, I didn't quite believe it. What was that moment like when you got that? Was it a phone call you got that when the you when you found out that it was going to happen, or it looked almost certain that it was going to happen? Well, that happened over a period of time. Um, my friend Chris Fowler, who is also an author at the time, who worked in the film industry, who who was uh, part of the creative partnership that that kind of promotes books. Yeah, he had told me, "Oh, film options." Don't pay much attention to them. They happen all the time. Things go into pre-production and then they stay there for years. Sometimes they never happen. Just don't believe anything's happening until you're in the cinema and the credits are rolling and it's there. <laughs> and so I believed him and, yeah. and he was right too. Um, he is right. But then I got a call from him and he said, hey, looks like your book's going ahead because I'm I'm in charge of the publicity for it. Right. So I knew that something was happening. And then I got some more phone calls. And I and I got a phone call from Juliette Binoche saying, I'm going to be in your movie. And <laughs> and can I come and stay with you? And can we can we read through the script? Because I'd like some pointers and, and I'd like to get wow. to know you and, and see if I can get some of what you, you meant in your book into the, the performance. And so things like that started to happen. But even then, it took me a while to to actually twig that, yes, I was going to end up in a cinema watching the credits roll. That must have been some moment, though, when she called you and said... It was, it was. It was um, it was extraordinary. Um, I was actually at somebody else's house. I, right. was at my, um, I, I was at my agent's house, and she was there with some friends, and uh, and we had Juliette Binoche <laughs> on the phone. <laughs> I thought this is this is a scene from a movie. I can't figure out which movie it is, yeah. but it's. Uh, it must have been hugely exciting, though. I, I'm guessing at that moment. It was exciting. It it was exciting and also stressful, um, because I didn't, I hadn't expected any of this. I mean, no. I hadn't expected the success of the book, and that was already phenomenal. Hmm. Um, and I hadn't expected the movie to be made as quickly. And it was. It came out almost immediately afterwards. It, right. it was, what, a year afterwards? Something yeah. like that. It yeah. was ridiculous. Most um, most films don't get made straight away like that. It's a very unusual situation. And so it seemed to me that it was a roller coaster ride that was never ending because every time I thought, you know, I'm on top of this now, I, I get it, I can cope. Um, I know what's happening. Something else, something huge would happen and I would have to sort of reassess my coping again all, all from the start. So it was great, but it was also everything happened very fast. A bit scary, was it? It was, it, was, it was very scary. Well, in a way, it was scary because I wasn't used to any kind of success. I wasn't mm. used to the scrutiny that comes with it. I wasn't used to the enormous attention of the press. I mean, at one point when the when the movie was up for some Oscars, I was in London, mm. and 
six cars full of reporters turned up at my house in in Huddersfield. In, right. Actually, it was in Barnsley at the time, because I still lived in my little little house in Barnsley, and they just parked on the road. <laughs> and my husband told them that I wasn't there. <laughs> And they just stayed there for something like 48 hours and they would photograph him as he came out and they would photograph our daughter, who was, what, five, as she went to school. And I was absolutely hopping mad. Yeah, I bet. Because, you know, it was in nobody's interest to do that. It was an intrusion. It was just disruptive and rude. And I wasn't there. Hmm. They knew I wasn't there. They couldn't talk to me. Yeah. And I suppose that's... But they kept trying to poke around and take pictures of the house and try and... And take long shots through the windows. That's a weird thing as well, isn't it? Them dragging your husband and well, it was daughter just bizarre. It, I just know. didn't think that would happen, and yeah. and it just seemed, you know, who who's interested? <laughs> and because I wasn't there, they just published photographs of this this rather humble little semi in in, in Barnsley because I wasn't there. <laughs> And were you still teaching then at this point? When uh, all I was, this going I was on? theoretically teaching. I was actually supposedly on sabbatical. Oh, okay. I had, um, because Chocolat had unexpectedly taken off in the way that it did, and I realised that people were expecting me to do publicity, Hmm. I tried to take two weeks off. Imagine that. I tried to take two weeks off from Leeds Grammar School to do some publicity for my book. (laughs) And the headmaster said, no, but you can take an unpaid sabbatical for a year. And so I thought, okay, I'll do that. Yeah. And so I took this unpaid sabbatical for a year and, and... of course, I wasn't able to go back. I thought I would. Yeah. Right until the last minute, I thought I might go back. I thought, you know, I'll get this out of the way and then we can go back to the way it was before and yeah. I can just teach and write <laughs> books and they'll come out and, and, and it'll be nice. And then I realised that actually, you know, you, you, you cannot take a plant out of a pot and then put it in the garden and then expect it to go back in the pot a year later. It doesn't right. work. And so I went back in, I think it was May, it was the last date that you, you, you could say whether you were coming back or not. And I said, look, I, I know I said I'd come back, but I don't think I'll be able to. And my boss just laughed and said, oh, darling, we've given your job to someone else. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone knew but me. Was it still a bit scary at that stage, you know, giving up the, the salary, the pension? Oh, absolutely. It was yeah. terrifying. Um, it was a proper leap of faith. But I realised, I had realised at the time... You know, I was I I had been getting reporters at the gates of the school wanting to talk to me. Mm. It was becoming intrusive. I had begun to realise that at some point I would ma- have to make a decision. I would have to give up one or the other. Yeah. And given that I just couldn't see myself giving up writing, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll do this. And the fact that the the film has gone ahead. Mm means that at least I have enough financial security for the next couple of years. Um, I mean, it wasn't a fortune. It wasn't like millions because mm. that's that's not what that kind of film deal is. But it gave me enough security to think, OK, well, I've got a bit of a, a sort of... I've got a chance here. We can see how it works. Mm. And so did you... when Just thinking about the movie itself, did you... Were you on the set and were you there yeah. as part of it? Yeah, I was on set. Um I was on set for about two weeks. Um, they filmed in a number of places. Um, I didn't go to all of them. Right. But they also filmed in a, in Shepperton Studio, where they had actually rebuilt the village. Right. On a soundstage. <laughs> um, because, in fact, the, the location that they'd chosen was so small that they couldn't get into any of the buildings, and they had to build all the, the interiors 
um, separately and then they had to build the vi village outside so that you could see the houses and the right. square and everything outside <laughs> of the villages uh, outside of the windows of the set so yeah there was that so I was there for about a fortnight I didn't have much to do really um, I was there mostly because Juliet wanted me there right it wasn't normal I think for the author to be on set no I think if Miramax had had their way they wouldn't have had me on set because they wouldn't have liked it no why they Everybody think it's a was, distraction? Well, it was, uh, it was Harvey Weinstein, or, of course, right, and yeah. and I mean, you know, this was long before Me Too, and and before it was, it became clear that he was a massive bully. But already it was clear that everybody was frightened of Harvey, hmm. and Harvey wouldn't have approved of my being there. Right, and everybody knew this, and at one point they thought he was coming on set, and I had to keep out of the way. Did you ever cross paths with him? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I met him several times. Right. Um, the first thing he said to me, actually, it was at a party at BAFTA. The first thing he said was, hello, I'm Harvey Weinstein. And when I come into a room, authors shit their pants. <laughs> that was exactly the kind of guy he was. And, was and so I said to, to him, in which case, Harvey, you've got my next dry cleaning bill. <laughs> and he laughed at that. And, and that was fine. But I could tell that everybody who worked for him, mm. and I was very lucky I didn't work for him. I, I didn't owe him anything. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like that. We didn't have that relationship, fortunately. But mm. everybody who worked for him was running scared of Harvey. And, and mm. he could have these enormous rages. And, and he was extremely demanding. And so the fact that I was on set and that I shouldn't have been it wasn't an issue as long as I didn't take photographs that would then be made public. And I yeah. was taking photographs. I was taking lots of them, but mm. I was sworn to secrecy over them. Mm. Um, and as long as people didn't, you know, say that I was there, it was all right. So, but yeah, people were lovely. Um, the crew were lovely. Mm. The cast were lovely. The director was, was lovely. It was, it was just the most friendly lot of people working together i don't know if it was all the chocolate or what but yeah. <laughs> but also lasse hallstrom is a very kind of calm individual and and he is not one of those directors who makes everybody tense yeah and johnny depp how was he well i only met him a couple of times um he was the one person who wasn't on set when i was there right because you know his part isn't very big no you look at it, he doesn't arrive until an hour into the movie. Sure, yeah. And he doesn't actually have that much to do. And most of his scenes were not there in the studio. They were mostly done on location by the river. And so I, I met him I met him later at, at you know, the Oscars and the premiere and this kind of thing, but I I didn't hang around with him on set. He's a very shy kind of guy. Hmm. Um and the thing about Johnny Depp was that he was not as famous then as he is now. No. And I had no idea who he was. Right. Um, you know, the one I, I was really excited about was Juliette Binoche because she was the one I, I'd had in mind from the start. Oh, really? And she was the one I'd been banging on about and saying, why don't you have Juliette Binoche? Why don't you have her? And they'd gone through all these other possibilities, none of whom I thought would have been remotely suitable. Hmm. I mean, at the time, Harvey was, was obsessed with having Gwyneth Paltrow in everything. Hmm. And he really, really wanted Gwyneth Paltrow. And I was thinking, is anybody ever going to believe that she eats chocolate? Mm, yeah. So I was quite pleased when, when she didn't go for it and, and when eventually it did go to Juliette. And so people would ask me about the casting and I would talk about Juliette and they would say, yes, but what about Johnny Depp? And, and I didn't know who he was. So I said, well, yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't even know who he was playing. I said, I don't think he's my type. And of course, if you say anything to the press, it comes back to bite you later yes. on. And so I met Johnny at the premiere 
And I thought, well, you know, I've seen the the dailies and I know what he's like now and I know who he's playing. I ought to come and say hello um, and thank him. And the first thing he did was just look at me <laughs> from under this little beanie that he was wearing and say, oh, hi, you're Joanne Harris. Apparently I'm not your type. <laughs> <laughs> but he took it okay then. We, we were fine after that. Yeah. I, I don't think he particularly is comfortable with being people's type. Right. Okay. I think he would much prefer to, you know, just play his guitar and be a pirate. <laughs> what was that like, though? It must have been an amazing experience to have, to have written a book, to have imagined a world, that, to then see it, you know, come to life, really. It's quite surreal. I do remember standing on the set between takes and everything smelt of chocolate <laughs> and smoke because they had this smoke machine to make to give that kind of slightly soft feel that you get in the movie and and looking at all the little details because mm. they were extremely attentive to detail and thinking my god this is just exactly how i wrote it but you know kind of better was it how you envisaged it did it fit your vision of it then <coughs> it did it did i think in many ways it fit my vision of it better than the script right fit my my telling of the story mm. and the, the story got moved around a little bit and reshaped because that's often what happens with Hollywood. But the tiny details taken from the descriptions of the, the locations, those were very, very well observed. Mm. And somebody took enormous care in doing this. And there were a few little things that Juliette had brought herself from my house mm. to put on the set. And there Such were as? these Well, there was there's this little a sort of dream catcher thing with little red sachets and bells on it, which right. she, she actually took that from my kitchen and put it on the set. And some other things, some little, some small items, some right. little red lucky sachets and things that she hangs up. And you, you see her doing this in the movie and that those, those things were from my house. Mm. And she wanted to, she wanted to make a connection between the set and the place she'd been when we, we talked and mm. when we read through the script and it was rather moving to see those things. What was it about her? What had you seen her in? Or how were you aware of her before that made you write it with her in mind? I had seen her in a number of French films. Um, and I just liked the way she looked. And I thought that she was... She had a sensitive face with many potential micro-expressions. She does mm. the small micro-expression very well. Um, I thought from a practical perspective that she was well known enough because of things like three colours, she would be well known enough to attract an American audience because, yeah. of course, there is always the fear that Americans will not have heard of your lead actor and therefore they'll be reluctant to go and see a film with them. Hollywood certainly thinks this happens. Mm. I don't know if it's true. Um, she was the right age. She had a child of about the right age. And I just I just thought that she'd be she'd be good in that role. Mm. Um and I just kept saying so. And eventually kind of synchronicity meant that she she read the book, she knew they were casting for it, she went and asked for the part. Right. I don't think that her being given the part had anything to do with me at all. I I don't I don't think Hollywood works that way. No. They don't listen to the authors, but they do listen to actors and 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 they definitely listen to Juliette. Mm. I noticed that you the, the dedication to the book is to your grandmother. Is mm. that right? Yeah. So, and is, is her character, is she based on your grandma, really? She is, yes. Yeah. Um, 
in a way, I mean, my, my great grandmother actually is is the the person to whom the book's dedicated. Right. And she is the uh, the character that Judy Dench played, uh, right, Armand. Yeah. And and it's interesting because uh, Judy was funny. She told me that it was the only time that she actually looked better when she took the makeup off. Um, <laughs> but she managed to really properly nail the way she looked and some of her physical mannerisms. And I thought that was astonishing because, you know, how how can you tell from a book that mm. that that's going to happen? But she was she was very. I, I thought her part particularly was very moving because of that. Um, and also, I mean, because Juliette came to my house and she met my daughter, Anushka, who is, shall we say, the prototype for the character of yep. Anouk. Um, a couple of times in the movie, she calls Anouk Anushka instead. Uh, and that still gives me goosebumps. Right. Huh. And they left that in. They because... left that in. She does it on purpose. Right. I think she decided that it was some sort of pet name. Yeah, yeah. Nickname, and yeah. and a couple of times she does that and I remember thinking, Wow, that's huh. that's something. Yeah. And was your great grandma alive then when it came no, out? No, she died when I was four. Right. But you In quite similar situation, in fact, to the way Armand died. Right. But she was a big influence for my mother and and, and I remember her surprisingly well hmm. for a four year old. And what did your mum and, you know, grandmother, mother and grandmother think of the film? Because so it was so, there are such, obviously based on elements of your family and yeah. what did they think of it? I, they liked it. What do it. they think of it? They, they, they liked it. They do like it. Yes. Mm. I think, um, I, my, my mother was a bit baffled by the whole thing. Right. Um, my mother who had said that writing was not a proper job and that I shouldn't think of doing it for a living, <laughs> suddenly found that I was doing it for a living and, and it just seemed incomprehensible that all this fuss was happening around me. Yeah. Um, and in fact, whenever the papers spoke to her, she was quite uncomplimentary about it and very funny. And, and she would tell them, oh, Joanne's just going through her late adolescent phase. It's just a bit of rebellion. She'll go back to teaching eventually. People loved this. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was quite funny, too. Um, I think, you know, I, I think in some ways... What really impressed her was that Leslie Caron was in that film. Right. Because she had seen her in Gigi when she was a girl. Right. And and that I think meant something to her. That that. So she was a, a movie star that she'd seen. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'd seen Gigi as well, but you know, black and white movies. Yeah. Um, but I think the fact that you know there was that connection. Well, it's obviously a real movie if she's in it, <laughs> and so maybe it was a real book too. And has she accepted now that this is a proper career to be a writer? I think she must have done sort of, but she doesn't really do it openly. Right. Um, until recently, she has never commented on any of my books. Really? Except for The Evil Seed, which was that terrible book. <laughs> until recently, she has never made an actual... Com She's read them. Right. In, in some cases, she has translated them into French, oh, because right. for, for quite some time, she was my French translator. Huh. But she didn't actually... She wouldn't actually say anything. Why not, do you think? I don't know. Um, she isn't always terribly forthcoming about things like that. I think she talks to other people about me, but I think she doesn't want me to get big-headed. Right. And then she read the Gospel of Loki, hmm. and it was the first time she'd commented. And this is what she said. <laughs> she said, I have read your book. It was funny. <laughs> that was it. That, that was... So I thought, wow. Yeah. That must, have, that must have cost you to say. And then she read The Strawberry Thief, which is my latest book. Yeah. And, and this one really took my breath away. She said, I read your book. 
it is the book I wish I had written. Oh, wow. And I thought, oh, wow, you know, that means something. That's a huge statement, isn't it? It, it kind of is. Did you know she'd wanted to write, write a book? Apparently, yes. She, um, she tells me that in her, her early youth, she started to write a book called Dista, which is Destinies. Right. And uh, she was about 17 or something. And then she realised that another author, I think it was Gide, had already written a book with that title. And so she stopped writing it and never wrote anything again. <laughs> so that was so when you were little, So that ended my mother's it, abortive or? career. No, no, this was long before right. I was born. Amazing. So well, what a thing to say. I mean, of all, from, from saying nothing to that, that is a, yeah, my mother that's a is massive always, swing of the pendulum. She's always it? a bit of a mystery to me. <laughs> but they live just down the road still. Yes, and we get on terribly well. Brilliant. But yeah, I, I think, you know, she's still a little bewildered about <laughs> about the fact that I do this thing and, and that it's something that neither of us quite understand. Does she still think you'll end up as a teacher again? Or is well, that... occasionally she tells me things like she'll say, well, you know, if if you find that you need to go back to teaching, I'm sure you'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> it's very it must be very hard you know for that for there's a generation isn't there i know you know that that it is all about getting a proper job oh yes and it does it is difficult i think to pull away from that it is difficult but also i mean it's it's also intensely practical i mean yeah, my mother is yeah. a very practical french woman and and she is right in the sense that most people do not make a living from writing yeah I've been incredibly lucky i'm one of the few who who actually can make a living from writing hmm. But most authors that I know have a day job and they either teach or they do journalism yeah. or they have a partner who supports them yeah. or, or something. You know, it, it's not a given. The, the average salary, the average yearly salary for a teacher is about 11 grand. You know, you for could, a writer. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you, could, you could make more working behind the counter at McDonald's. Yeah. And this is, you know, this is something that I think in in among the, the few success stories that have made the papers, people tend to forget that the average is not like that yeah. and, and that authors do need support. And, and which is one of the reasons that I campaign for the Society of Authors and the ALCS to try to raise awareness of this because, you know, it's... It is shocking in some ways that one of our biggest exports in this country is fiction. It, it you know, fiction and creativity mm. earns billions of pounds a year. But so little of that goes to the actual creators. Mm. So, you know, they make money, but they don't actually get the money. Mm. And there's something wrong with that. There has to be something that can be changed. And, yeah. and it's partly about changing people's attitudes. Is that a question about sort of copyright law or is that more a question of the, the way the industry works? It's a lot of things together. It's both of those things and a lot more things together. Mm. Partly it's the industry and the way it works. Partly it is it is copyright. Um, partly it's it's issues like piracy hmm. but mostly it, it's about the fact that mostly creators are not great at talking about money hmm. and they tend to be exploited by people who monetize their work but who don't actually pay them a fair price for it because hmm. it's difficult i think for people who are not creators to understand that this thing that comes out of your head it's actually worth something yeah it has value yes in, in some cases a huge value absolutely yeah as we've seen, well, as you say, in terms of British exports of 
you know, creative work. It's mm. unbelievable, isn't it? How we much... are an incredible exporter mm. of, of creative talent. And is it, uh, do you think the, the government could do more to support? Huge, huge amounts. Yes, mm. they could do a lot more. I mean, for a start, they could, um, they could reinstate um, the investment in the arts that they yeah. have slashed in some cases down to nothing. Yeah. Um, they need to understand that the arts need support because actually from these things come things that actually can be monetized. They yeah. need to push for the arts in schools again because there has been this, this general feeling under this government that the arts don't lead to anywhere, therefore we need to push the sciences instead. Well, sciences are great, but creativity is something that spans all disciplines, including mm. sciences, and to cut down on investment in it is pointless and a waste of time. Mm. Um, and they need to do things like practical things, like take tax off ebooks. Mm. You know, people are, people shouldn't be penalised for reading ebooks or audiobooks. There shouldn't be any tax on those. It's, there is no reason for that tax to exist. It needs to go. It's, it's undermining all kinds of, of areas of publishing. It's making people less less likely to want to pay for those things. It's making piracy more appealing to people who feel that they're being unfairly dealt with. Hmm. Um, it's undermining income to authors, which is also creating a kind of cascade of repercussions throughout publishing, throughout the whole industry. Hmm. Um, it, it's... It's something that needs thinking about. I think our, our politicians are not great about protecting the arts because they don't really understand them and they're, they're not experiencing them. They, you mm. know, I, I think we should, if we had politicians who were readers, then we would have a different series of policies. Mm. Now, I have to ask you, it's the beginning of November now. We've got a general election coming up in December. Yeah. Do you have any optimism for the future in terms of, what might change as a result of that election? Oh, I hope we. I hope it changes. I, I do hope. I think we are in a we are in a bleak situation, and not just in this country either. I think there has been a depressing swing to the right, a depressing swing into populism. There is huge corruption in our current government. Um, open, barefaced lying, propaganda interference from foreign powers um but yes i'm still optimistic because you know what if i wasn't i would probably not survive hmm. yeah i suppose you have to be optimistic don't you otherwise there's no i do think so and i also tell myself from time to time that once this bleak period is over we are going to have the most amazing raft of dystopian fiction which was written from this <laughs> yeah, time yeah. which we can look forward to as long as we survive through to its publication yeah absolutely well i've got um three questions to finish that i ask everybody who has appeared on the podcast so okay we've touched on this a bit uh, and obviously i think from what we we're talking about it will vary depending on the time of year but do you have a, a routine that you always follow when you are you know on a writing day let's say if you're going to write do you do a certain set of things in the same order you know do you have a routine to set you up for the the writing I try to, yes. Um, if I'm travelling, obviously my routine is slightly different. Mm. Um, I generally start work as soon as I get up. Right. Um, I go to the shed. Um, 
I read through what I wrote the previous day aloud, which helps me get back into the zone. Mm. Um, from time to time, I'll do a little quick edit of that. Usually there's, it's not that much because I don't write all that much every day, but I do try to write mm. every day if I can. Oh, do you? Um, but reading aloud is very much part of my process. And I also have a scent because um, I find that, because I experience the world through scent primarily anyway, is this the synesthesia? It is partly to do with my synesthesia, but it's yeah. also because I've got a sort of freakish sense of smell. Right. And, and so I do tend to, to notice scents a lot more. And I've found it, it's, it's a technique that I learned from method acting. Right. That you can get into the zone by using a scent-by-scent scent association. Mm. And so every one of my books has got a scent associated to it. So it means that even if I'm working in a hotel room, I can get into the zone very quickly. Mm. By, and is this by like a candle? Then, I'll smell it? the bottle or I'll wear the scent okay, so it's or a, whatever. Yeah. And I will associate it with that book. So it's a, it's a perfume, is it? Or is yeah. It a, right, it's, a it's, a short, it's a short method. Sometimes I make my own from combinations okay. of things. I worked this out when I was a kid. When I was revising for exams, I read somewhere that you could use scent to help you focus. Right. And it didn't matter what scent it was, as long as you associated it with revision and focus and huh. exams. And so I carried this on to later to, to writing books. And so all my books have had scents attached to them. And each one has a different scent. It has to be, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so, okay, so first thing in the morning, into the shed. Do you have any breakfast, a cup of coffee? Oh, I, was, I, I drink tea and I have breakfast. And and sometimes I go for a run first, but right. in this in this weather, that's not going to happen. No. And then does it tend to be a sort of burst of two hours <laughs> or three hours and then stop? I'll or? work until I run out of steam. Right. Usually that will be sort of, on a day with light, it will be about mid-afternoon. Right. On a day like this, I'll be lucky to make it to lunch. Right. <laughs> okay. But then you always feel... There's a point when you think, right, that's that's me for the day. Yeah, usually I know where that is. Yeah. Usually it's at the end of a chapter. Right. Usually there is a rhythm. My chapters are quite short, and this is because I work in that way. Hmm. <coughs> Dear me. But yeah, that, that's, that's how it works. And, and I don't tend to have a word count. I don't obsess about words. Right. I think, you know, to have good words rather than a lot of words is the important thing to yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. And then, second question then. When you look back over everything... Um, I guess professionally, this is the question is about the writing and the, but also the teaching. Anything that you've been doing over the years, what is the thing that you, you sort of most proud of when you look back? You know, it gives that sort of warm, fuzzy feeling. You think, yeah, I did that. I did that right. That that went exactly as I hoped it would. Or I'm most proud of that moment. It's it's difficult because I'm I'm not sure I, I experienced that feeling mm. in quite the way that other people experience it. Um, what do you mean by that, by the way? Well, the, this idea of self, of 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 feeling a sense of fulfilment in mm. that way. Um, I always feel that my achievements have been sort of by luck or accident <laughs> rather than because of ambition or or, or a sense of belief in myself. Mm. I think possibly the thing that I'm most proud of is my daughter. Yeah. And every time I look at her, I think, yeah, she is my greatest achievement, assuming that, that I have anything to do with this person <laughs> who, is, who is just becoming more impressive day by day. Mm. Um, there are little things, but they are not generally professional things that I okay. think of as a say. I mean, for instance, the first time I, 
The first time I stood up and actually sang for story time, which was the first time I'd sung in 20 years in front of an audience, that was something I was proud of because I was so frightened of doing it and I felt that I'd done it. Um, you know, the first time I did a grading in jiu-jitsu, I used to do jiu-jitsu for many years. Right. And, you know, I felt this tremendous sense of achievement at doing that. Most of the things I feel achievement for are quite small humble things in lots of ways they're not really about books or writing or movies or right. anything like that just to pick up on the jujitsu by the way what was how long did you do that for i did it for 12 years until i got pregnant with my daughter and then i realized that being <laughs> being you know chucked on a concrete floor wasn't necessarily great and i never got back to it which which made me a bit sad but i was i was slightly worried that physically i wouldn't be up to it anymore no but you enjoyed it while I you did, did it. enjoy it i i got up I got up to uh, to a brown belt, and I wasn't huh. I wasn't bad. <laughs> Final question then: What are you uh, enjoying, sort of consuming in a creative way right now? So whether it's a, a book that you're reading, or whether it's something on TV or that you're watching, or something that you're music that you're listening to, what ah. is what is one thing that, or a couple of things that you are enjoying or? Enjoying oh right well, now. I'm I'm musically I'm really enjoying Big Big Train's new album, which I've just got, and I'm really really enjoying that. Reading, I'm going through a graphic novels phase at the moment ah, okay. because I've had too many um, ambitious first novels sent to me recently, and I'm reading a series called Fence, which is mad and wonderful, <laughs> which is a high melodrama set in a fencing school. I'm really liking that. And, and is this something that's been published, or do you? Yes, do you yes, mean, it's. Yeah. Uh, it's I, I often read graphic novels, particularly when I'm getting slightly tired of the kind of arcs that people send me, um, which are often much of a kind. Um, when you say people send them, who, who publishers send me them? Oh, publicists generally, and usually they are first novelists wanting a quote, and it's fine. And oh, okay. so I, I do as many as I can, but I, I can't always do them all. No. And also, it's not good for me to to read in the same area all the time. Um, and and obviously on 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 Netflix, I'm watching BoJack Horseman, which has just dropped its new series, <laughs> which I watched, adore. I've, watched, I've only just started watching the first series of that quite recently. I know oh, I'm way behind, but it's it is wonderful. very funny, isn't it? It is. I think it's the best writing I've seen in years. Really, it's absolutely amazing and gets better and better and better. <laughs> really, right? I will and I'm sitting tight for the new season of The Crown, which is just about to drop, which I will be looking forward to enormously. <laughs> I will definitely be watching some more Bojack Horseman on that recommendation. Joanne, thank you very much for talking to me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Joanne Harris there. Thank you to Joanne uh, for being such a, a great interviewee and for being so welcoming uh, into her home on such a, a grim day. Um, and, and thank you to her for showing me the music room afterwards as well, which was nice. I did enjoy seeing the, the two bases and everything else that they've got in there. I uh, hope you enjoyed that interview with Joanne. Um, do please like and subscribe uh, the pod to the podcast. Please leave a review if you can on your podcast provider. It all helps to boost the ratings of the podcast, helps other people to find it. And if you can, please share this episode, other episodes on social media. Really appreciate it. And if you want to get in touch, do do that. Uh, creativeforcespod at gmail.com or at creativeforcesp uh, on Twitter. Uh, do get in touch. I'd love to hear from you.